You're listening to episode 379 of the GNU World Order. My name is Klaatu, and in this episode we're going to be looking at some listener feedback, and we shall also be talking about Slackware 15.0, or the lack thereof. So let's get started. So first up is listener feedback. Apparently back in episode 38 of the 13th season, so that was that's a while ago now. So I've recently switched to just numbers. No seasons, just numbers. 379. So I took the number of seasons and some average number of episodes and calculated that I'm approximately at episode 379 now. But before that, I, I was using season numbers to indicate sort of when I would take a break, really. But now I just don't take a break, so there's no, no point in doing any sense of seasons. And back in season 13, episode 38, apparently I said... Hey, send me inf- send me stories of how you got into Linux because I legitimately find this sort of thing very interesting. Um, and I I I hope that eventually I will I will see stories shift in the pattern to something like oh I was raised on Linux and and just see where those stories go because there are very few stories I think now or at least that I receive of people being raised on Linux. Now uh, there are many stories that I can kind of I can kind of detect starting to surface of people being essentially raised on Chromebook, which of course is running Linux, but you'd never know it from what I understand. I really need to get a Chromebook and actually experience that thing for myself. I've I've messed around with one or two briefly, but I, I've never owned one and tried to live on it. And I really, I really should do that, especially now that most of my personal laptops have seemed to all have, I guess, died. The laptops are fine, but the batteries are sort of beyond recovery, apparently, and that's that's the replacement batteries, so I'm not really sure what's going on with those. But anyway, I'm curious as to how the story, the origin stories of Linux users will shift as time continues. Uh, I mean, it, it might not. You know, it might st- it, it may have just stabilized on, well, I was raised primarily on this platform, dabbled in this platform, ended up a Linux user now, something like that, because that seems to be a pretty common one. But this one's from Izzy. And Izzy says, I'm just going to kind of read, I think, probably most of this email. It it is a little bit long, but uh, it's a story. We might as well enjoy. Okay, so I'll skip over the intro. I know I just said I was going to read the whole thing, but the intro is just about how Izzy is a listener of this show, which I think we can all just take for granted at this point. So Izzy says, It begins probably when I was four years old, back before I knew what Linux or Unix even was, because my father taught me how to program x86 assembly, by writing instructions on scratch paper and walking through them with me, as if we were playing the role of the instruction accumulator. He had done computers in college back when they were called minis for only taking up the space of a wardrobe rather than an entire room and wasn't too concerned with the operating system on it, but how to punch various holes into a paper tape to make the computer do what he wanted it to do. As I grew up, I always remembered these things, because it gave me an understanding of what programming was and how a computer really operated on the, on the lowest levels. So I'm going to pause there. This is Klaatu again. I, I just want to kind of pause in reading this because I think that's a great story in itself. Fascinating to me how significant that must have been to get a lesson on analog programming at any point, really, in your life. I mean, remove age from the equation and just think about how the human brain works. Computers themselves are often not the, the best way to learn computing. It's, it's weird because we, we, we have computers now, so the word computation and compute and, and that sort of, you know, the words from which computer were derived, they, they frequently nowadays 
they only mean something done on a digital computer. But really, that's not what... the Digital computing is a recent thing. Computation is not. And I don't think that really... I don't think I really understood that myself until I really started thinking about game design. And it was tabletop gaming that kind of made me realize that these fun games that you play at home with your friends, especially the co-op ones where you're all working toward a goal and you're working against the game itself, that that was a process that was a form of computation. And it wasn't until I took a little course, a little math class at work, they were offering uh, 3D matrix mathematics for, um, you know, for in the, in the, within the film studio, uh, for people who, who hadn't had that in school, they, they offered it at work as sort of a, a lunch and learn type of thing, which by the way, I did not learn, uh, nor did I lunch. I lunched before the class, took the class, did not learn the math, tried, could not, um, so maybe next time, but it wasn't until I had mathematical functions explained to me as literally a function. I never really understood how even, like, math sort of related to computation, bizarrely enough. So what I'm trying to say is I think there's a lot of value in the analog lessons around computing that shouldn't be discounted, and and I think we do. We we ignore it a lot, I think. I have a friend uh, who teaches young children, and one of the first things she does in her programming classes for, with, with you know, the intro course with little tiny children is analog computing, where you give the kids some note cards, and the note cards have symbols on them, like an arrow and a, a stop sign and things like that, and the, the kids program a, a quote-unquote robot, which is actually a human, a teacher, and and they program the, the teacher with this these instructions on what to do. So, for instance, there might be a simple goal, like, okay, we'll get this quote-unquote robot across the room without bumping into the wall and, and, and have them hit a certain spot. And so, you know, you put the arrow down and then the stop sign, and that makes the robot go forward and then stop. Or, or maybe an arrow, 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 you know, three steps and then stop, whatever. Uh, and then, and then you introduce something a little bit more complex, like here, here's an obstacle. Now we've got a chair in the way. So how do we get the robot to go up to the chair, but not bump into the chair, and then around the chair, and then into the target spot, or whatever. I'm kind of making it up, but you get the idea. And when I, you know, when I saw that lesson, I just thought, well, that's, that's brilliant. Like, that's a great way of teaching computing without ever turning on a, a screen. No screen time, but all computing, all uh, an entire computing lesson without having to, I don't know, learn how to type or learn how to use a mouse or just to be by, by being dazzled by pixels on screen. So very, very cool. Okay, back to Izzy's email. It says, fast forward a bit when I was nine, my sister gave me my first computer I ever owned for my birthday, and it was, frankly, a piece of e-waste. I was very excited. Finally, a machine that I could make do whatever I wanted. Very quickly, I began messing with the Windows XP install that was installed on it, trying to customize it and optimize it however I could. I changed, um, however I could. I changed the boot logo. I edited registry files. I changed the theming and the layout, and I tried uninstalling all the bloat I could off of it. I decided that I wanted to start programming in a real language that people were currently using at the time, the one that stood out was Ruby. It was a pain in the absolute boot sector to get it installed. And once I had finally unpacked the libraries, ran the installer, and accessed the command prompt with a working environment, it broke on me. I was livid. 
The computer was supposed to do what I told it to do, not the other way around. Okay, this is Clat 2 again. I'll press pause again. This is kind of interesting to me because I feel like this is a common thread in this kind of story that certainly I share with Izzy and, and probably other people share with Izzy just because, like again, this is just kind of where we are at in computer development, right? You, you, you get introduced to some to one OS and then you discover Linux a little bit later. And one of those steps in that discovery of, or right before you discover Linux, it seems to be, and this is something that I've heard a lot of, is it's it's sort of hacking to whatever degree you can hack on the OS that came with your computer to kind of fix it. And you can take the word fix to mean a lot of different things. I mean, it can be, well, literally to fix, like it's broken and, and it will not operate unless I go in and intervene. Or it could just be, well, it doesn't operate the way that I want it to operate, so I'm going to try to hack on it as much as I can to get it sort of aligned with what I would actually what I actually want a computer to do and that does seem to usually fall flat it seems to fail and, and that's kind of one of the things that that drives us to Linux it's kind of interesting okay so next paragraph as I looked for a way to start on actually writing applications I discovered that a lot of people were recommending this thing called Linux based on something called Unix long story short he starts hearing about Ubuntu and from Ubuntu, uh, apparently people are saying Ubuntu was a little bit bloated at the time. This is around 2006 or so. And so he stumbles upon something called Linux Mint. I didn't really know what beta software or development version Mint at the time. So I thought it was fine that I was running a Linux distro literally the first day it was released on bare metal with no Linux experience. I never really was woken up from that illusion as I just thought that opening up the terminal and issuing mod probe this and chone that was the easy and beginner-friendly way to do things. Through that process, I learned a lot about the structure of the Linux kernel as well as the Linux directory structure. I was on Linux Mint for about five years or so until I bought this, my own computer with my own money at age 16. When I got the computer pre-installed with Windows, unfortunately, I decided to graduate, quote-unquote, to Ubuntu, as I was having a lot of hardware compatibility issues that Ubuntu was apparently the distro to deal with. Since I had Windows installed on the computer already, I decided to use this nifty application called Wubi, that's W-U-B-I, which, if my memory serves, was supposed to load the Windows inst install into RAM and repartition the disk to install Ubuntu alongside Windows. Starting from Ubuntu 13.10, I distro hopped for many years, trying everything from DSL to Core Linux to not quite installing OpenBSD, to Gentoo, to Void Linux, to Solus, to you get the point. I've tried more distros I could get my hands on, but all of them have had problems that, uh, that I couldn't install packages into their package manager without doing some weird process to package them. This year, however, I decided to try a distro I hadn't tried yet, Slackware. And it was like a breath of fresh air. Just the simple fact that I can package software by compiling it is like I finally have the control over my system I have been craving since I was nine years old with the first computer. I still am in the middle of my Linux journey, but that's how it started. And that's Izzy's story. I think it's, um, it's a really good one. Lots of common little tidbits in there that I, I feel like a lot of people share when they're talking about how they found Linux. I do want to kind of highlight maybe here a little bit that, you know, he mentions specifically Mod Probe and Chone and things like that having been a result of 
him stumbling into a distribution sort of at the right time, except the wrong time. I mean, like the first day of its release, that's kind of the wrong time. And yet I do, I feel like a lot of us have that same kind of experience as well. Sort of like finding the the, the wrong thing for you as a new user that then ends up to be exactly the right thing. I mean, for me, for whatever reason, I started out with Linux just weeks before Slackware 12. I think it was 12.1 was released. It might have been. Was there a 12.2? I, I don't know. But whatever it is, I started out on the one. And so for a couple of weeks, I spent just I just spent my first couple of weeks on Linux proper, uh, compiling recompiling a kernel because there was a missing Wi-Fi. There was a Wi-Fi card in my laptop that just didn't exist in the kernel yet. So recompiling the kernel without really any knowledge still of what a kernel was exactly. I mean, I think by that time, I guess I kind of did know what a kernel was, but it was it was pretty hazy. Um, and, and that's how I started, was compiling the kernel in a, in, a, in a year where, you know, people were pretty much just, it was an assumption that people didn't, by then, people didn't compile kernels anymore. That was not really a thing that you did. But there I was, compiling a kernel. And I was perfectly happy to do it, to be honest. I wasn't frustrated. I was I was learning a lot. I knew I was learning a lot. I knew that the lesson was difficult, but I knew that it was valuable. And looking back, that's still true today. And and it's funny too, because as Linux users, I feel like we do spend a lot of time and energy thinking of ways to prevent that sort of thing from ever happening to other users. And while I do believe that that is a noble cause, I do believe that we should always be striving to make to make the experience on Linux better. That's the ideal. We want technology to be smooth and helpful and so on. But at the same time, I think sometimes we overthink it as well. I'm not saying everyone needs to have hard lessons when they first are introduced to Linux by any means. I, I, I'm I'm all for someone having a smooth, worry-free, n- just fall into Linux and not even notice. I, I love that that idea. I've known people to do it. I've known several people. Some people I've introduced to Linux and other people have just, I've met and they've, they're like, oh yeah, I run this uh, thing called Ubuntu. I don't know if you know of it, you know, and it's just like, wait, what? Um, so yes, I've, I've met these people. I have talked to them. They exist. They've had really smooth introductions to Linux one way or the other. And that is great. At the same time, getting a computer is never, a, it's always subject to something, right? I mean, you might think, well, you know, if someone buys this computer off the shelf, then they'll never have a problem. And that's, that's such a disgrace. Well, I've worked computer support desks before. I know that that's not true. And if you've worked computer support desks, I know that you know that that's not true. It just doesn't happen that way. There's no guarantees in life with Linux or any operating system. I guess what I'm saying is we, we mustn't overthink this too much. We don't need to be overly critical of that introductory Linux experience because fact of the matter is these are still computers. There's a lot of variables here. There's a lot of hardware out there. There's new hardware every day and no one's telling the software people what hardware is coming out and the software people have to play catch up and and so on. It's just it's non-stop. So that's fine. Don't overthink it. Don't panic if when you're introducing Linux to someone or if you're being introduced to Linux yourself, there are going to be moments of of triumph and there are going to be moments of confusion. And that's normal and it's it's fine. Let's move on now to... Actually, I was going to talk about Slackware, but I feel like let's talk about PowerTop first and then I'll talk about Slackware in general. So PowerTop is an application for Linux used to diagnose issues related to power consumption and power management. This is an application put out 
by Intel, specifically for Linux, and it is geared towards systems running on a battery. So my Slackware machine is not running on battery. It is a desktop machine. So it the PowerTop is not very useful for it. Uh, PowerTop is also, as I said, put out by Intel. And while it, it, it doesn't require Intel, from what I understand, it can still work with just uh, ACPI enumeration, I guess. But uh, I, I, I gather that because it's by Intel and there are a couple of Intel-specific things within it, I think it's probably optimal to be used with Intel. My Slackware system is not an Intel system. It is an AMD system. So that's two strikes against PowerTop on Slack on my Slackware machine. So my, my point is that I'm I'm trying to get to here is that I did not actually use PowerTop on my Slackware system for, for for the research for this show. I instead used it on my ThinkPad, uh, which I have from work, and it is an Intel system running uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.2. So that's what I've tested PowerTop on, simply because again, I the the system I'm running Slackware on is not battery powered. That's the primary reason. I would have I would have been up for it if it had been uh you know an AMD system on battery or something like that, but not being on battery at all just kind of makes PowerTop not as useful. The workflow for PowerTop is relatively simple. You well, okay, I'll I'll tell you what you're probably going to do first and then I'll tell you what you you should do. So, PowerTop if you're like me, you will just first type in the command to see what happens. And if you do that, you get sort of a a thing that looks maybe superficially a little bit like top, uh, and, and you might make that association because it's called power top. There's top, there's H top, kind of think they're the same thing maybe. It also kind of superficially works or looks like maybe something like PS or, or some kind of an anal- analysis tool like that. Um, and I, I guess in a way, I guess it's a little bit like H top, but, but really it's, it's very specific towards the efficiency of your system. So the first thing that you'd want to do if you were going to try this out is unplug your power cable from your laptop. You want to be running on battery for this. And then instead of just typing power top, what you'll actually want to do is type in, well, I'm going to type in history so I can remember what I did. Okay, here we go. So the first thing that you're going to do is you're going to do a power top dash dash calibrate. And what that does is it kind of takes note, it, it runs a little test cycle, and and figures out the levels of power consumption on your on your device. Like what, what processes running on your device in its typical idle, I don't know if idle is the correct term, but in its typical state, what is using up the power and in what way, and so on. And that, that takes a while. It, that'll take a good, I don't know, five, ten minutes. And it'll it'll seem a little bit weird, because your screen blacks out, and then it comes back on, and then it blacks out again later. So, yeah, you'll you'll get confused, and you will not be sure of, of what it's doing, or why it's doing what it is doing. If you just let it do its thing, within a couple of minutes, a couple of couple of minutes, you get your prompt back. But it doesn't necessarily tell you a whole lot from there. It doesn't tell you what you're meant to do next. All you know is that you've calibrated something, and it's not really very clear about what what you're supposed to do next, which I think would be a, a criticism that I would have of this little application. I mean, that's what the user manual is for, I guess, is the counter-argument to that. And this user manual, honestly, 
is quite good at explaining a, a lot of stuff. I mean, this is a lot more about power consumption than I knew. Uh, for instance, I didn't know that there was a thing called C-states, package C-states, often referred to as PC-states or PCX, happen when all the platform cores agree to enter a specific C-state, and so on. So, I mean, this is interesting stuff, and you can determine whether you're using CPU Freak or Intel P-state by doing a cat on slash sys devices system cpu cpu zero for instance cpu freak freq as in frequency slash scaling underscore driver and it'll tell you like what you're using in you can find intel p state controls at cd or slash sys slash devices slash system slash cpu slash intel underscore p state so i mean it's a really good manual uh that you know if you're really you really want to know how to use PowerTop, i guess this would be the place to go but uh for me i i didn't really want to get too deep into into power management necessarily uh so i just kind of sort of followed along with what they were what they got to eventually i think i, I would have appreciated at the beginning of the manual maybe like step one step two step three you're done you're 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 efficient now i think that would have been kind of nice um, although I can definitely respect them wanting you to actually read the text as well. They, I'm sure they worked very hard on this manual. Oh, it's 10-page manual, so it's, yeah, definitely an easy read. Okay, so the next thing after you calibrate, generally speaking, from what I'm understanding, is that you're going to do a power top dash dash auto dash tune. And you'll do these as, um, with sudo, with a sudo prefix. You need administrative privileges for these. So, sudo power stop sudo power top ca dash dash calibrate, sudo power top dash dash auto dash tune, and that's it. You're kind of done. Now, there's a caveat here, and that is that power top um, dash dash auto tune only lasts until you, you know, for your current session. If, if you were to reboot your system, then all of those power top performance enhancements go away. So you're going to have to add stuff to your dot bash RC, in order to to retain these these settings, how do you know what to add to your dot bash RC? I have not found a really really elegant way of doing this. I've I've looked, but I I, I have not found like the switch in PowerTop that says sort of um, you know just export the stuff that I need for persistent tuning of my system. And I feel like it really ought to be, I feel like that ought to be a thing that you can get from PowerTop, but like I say, in the 10 pages of the user manual, I was not able to find that. So it may well not exist, um, or it might just be in a, it might be in a, in one of its options that I'm not, that I'm just not connecting sort of to that purpose. For instance, there are there is a dash dash CSV and a dash dash HTML um, option that outputs a bunch of information either as a CSV file or an HTML file, but I don't see anywhere in there that it will give me what I want, like the actual, the options that I want to, um, to, to make PowerTop persistent across all sessions. And according to the, the user manual, as far as I can tell, the, 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 the way that they are recommending you, you do this is that you enter interactive mode and toggle on and off the good and the bad setting. And when you do that, when you toggle it off or back on, you see the command that it that it's running in order to get it to a good state. So interactive mode is that thing that you see when you first type power top. If you just type power top 
to into a terminal, you get that interactive mode that looks superficially like top or age top. Across the top of the screen is a tabbed is a tab bar. It looks like a menu bar, but it's actually a tab bar. And so if you hit tab and you go over to tunables, you get a list. You get um, a, a list. Now all, all of everything in my list right now on my screen is set to good because I've already run auto to uh, calibrate and auto tune. Uh, when I first did this, the very first time when I went to tunables, there were a bunch of bad things in there. They, they were marked bad. But after I've calibrated and auto-tuned, everything is set to good. How did they get to good? Well, you select one of the items. And now there's a screen full of items. So I guess what I really would want to do if I was going to actually make this a thing, and I, and this is honestly what I intend to do, because I would like to try this out. Uh, I mean, who's going to say no to better battery time? So I'm going to try it out, but what I'll have to do is reboot this machine at some point, run PowerTop, take note of the bad ones, and mark those as bad uh, somewhere, like on a sheet of paper or something, and then do the calibration, do the auto-tune, and then go through and just select the ones that were bad and are now good. Select those, toggle that on or off, and, and see what setting it had to run in order to get there. Now, I'm not sure because I haven't done it. I haven't done an A-B testing test setup yet, but I, I believe the ones that didn't have to be adjusted from bad to good, when you when you look at them, the command, it just tells you that there was no command. So I feel like that may be an indication. Um, either way, I would like some confirmation, and I will have to do further further testing on that for myself. But in practice, what you'll do is you'll go to PowerTop Interactive Mode, tab over to tunables and then look at something that is set to good now and it tells you for instance here's bluetooth device interface status it is set to good now i'm assuming that previously it was set to bad because when i toggle it back to bad uh, it tells me that in order to get it to good i could run slash usr slash sbin slash hci config space hci zero space up space ampersand redirect dev null ampersand and and that would apparently make this much more efficient now i'm surprised that that's all it takes to get this to be efficient because to me that sounds like we're just turning on the hci uh, control which is something that i'm more or less familiar with because i had a usb uh, keyboard that i used to use with my pocket chip just a little embedded system, little um, little personal. It's like a Raspberry Pi with a screen on top of it, basically. Uh, so I'm surprised that what PowerTop is telling me is that all I have to do in order to make that uh, good is turn on HCI control. That that seems puzzling to me. Um, but there's other stuff too. Auto suspend for USB device. XHCI host controller USB three says echo on redirect. Uh, quote, sysbus USB devices, USB 3 slash uh, power slash control. So w once again, um, this is essentially enabling auto suspend for a USB device, which I'm assuming was not on before. And that makes sense to me, because if I don't have auto suspend active, then when I plug in a USB device into my battery-powered computer, then I'm going to assume that it's going to be on whether that USB device is actively being used or not, which does seem bad for a battery. So that one makes a lot of sense to me. And these commands that I'm seeing by toggling a good back to bad and then back to good again. Um, if I enter that command into, uh, they say just put it into your dot bash rc. If I enter that into bash rc, 
then suddenly I'll be I'll, I'll be properly efficient uh, on this device. Now here's the thing that I haven't quite thought through yet as well. Um, th- this you know power top is telling me what's best for battery power, but if I'm not on battery power, then then do I want all these settings to be active? Will I will I will I see a performance hit due to this or or not? So. Yeah, I almost feel kind of like PowerTop or the PowerTop optimizations would be things that I want to become active when I switch over to battery and then ignore when I go back onto power. But I don't see a way, again, just with PowerTop, I don't see a way to make that occur. I don't see a, you know, I don't see an easy way to sort of script this. So, I don't know, it it's, it is clearly... I mean, yeah, I'm going to say clearly, because what I'm looking at is their official user guide, their their manual. And, I mean, just the way that the tool works, too. It, it's obviously not something that you, you activate and have running in the background that detects when you're on battery and when you're off, uh, when you're on AC, and, and it, it's switching optimizations depending on what you're doing. You know, it's, it's obviously something, it's an analysis tool that tells you, hey, you're on battery power right now, here's what's not efficient. Here are the fixes that you can implement to make it more efficient. Getting that to be like any kind of dynamic sort of on-demand service is up to someone else, I think. That's the the work for analysis has been done with PowerTop. Utilizing that is up to whatever else. And who knows, maybe that's what some of these backends are using, like in KDE system settings, when you go there and you go to um, energy, what is it, energy power management. Maybe that's part, maybe that uses PowerTop in part. I don't know. It's just worth mentioning, I guess, that, that PowerTop isn't the thing that you're going to turn on and then have your computer suddenly run more more efficiently. It's 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 an analysis tool, and and they'll be set up for you for you to do after you after you run it, if you want it to be a thing that that happens. And then it, certainly, if you want it to happen, if you want that thing to happen every time you just go on ba- on on battery power, and then to stop doing the thing when you go back onto power, then you'll have to implement a, a completely different solution. Although, interestingly, in the previous episode, I was talking about PMUtil, and that's the uh, power management utility scripts that tell you if you're on AC power or not. That's kind of useful, possibly, for this, power for power top. There's, there's some connecting of parts that you might be able to do to come up with an interesting solution, and certainly I do intend to uh, probably do some of that on on this laptop now that I know PowerTop exists. Speaking of power and top, it's time to top up your cup of coffee and renew your power. So let's go do that, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about state of Slackware. Okay, I've got my cup of coffee. I hope you have your cup of coffee because we're going to talk about the sustainability or longevity of Slackware. Slackware 14.2 was released in July, July 1st, actually, of 2016, which, as I say it out loud, sounds simultaneously like it was ages ago and like it was just yesterday. And I say it, it sounds like it's ages ago because it's like 2016. It's 2020 now. We're in the next decade block. That 
feels significant somehow, even though it really isn't. But it sounds like a short, sort of brief period of time, because if you think about long-term support in the Linux world, five years is kind of the gold standard. By gold standard, I just kind of mean it's the default. I don't know that it's the gold standard because of any reason. It's just that's it's probably someone's marketing idea. Five years was easy to sell, uh, easier to sell than four years. I don't know, you know, what, whatever. But Ubuntu long-term support is five years, I'm pretty sure. RHEL long-term support is five years, I'm pretty sure. OpenSUSE, I think, starts at five and then goes up to eight or possibly 10, something like that. I haven't looked at it recently. I know they they have quite uh, an impressive long-term support option. So those distributions that that sort of declare long-term support, five years is, is pretty typical. And so Slackware having this release cycle, of course, we, they don't we don't call it long-term support here. I mean, technically everything back to, I think, Slackware 8. something is still supported uh, with security updates. But the this release cycle for 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 the the new the exciting new upgrade OS upgrade being let's say four going on five years let's let's even extend it and say five and some change six years whatever that's about right now it does feel sometimes a little bit um, tenuous because of because of the the outside world it it keeps sort of shifting right, right you you stay you stay secure um, you you stay safe and sound on your um on your sort of little slackware island but the rest of the world around you is is still moving and you see that in different places in practice so for instance the first time i think we probably really saw it was python I mean, everyone saw it with Python. But when Slackware 14.2 released, 2.7.5 or whatever it was, was the correct choice. That was the sensible and correct choice for what Python to, to, to ship with your OS. 3 had, I don't know how long 3 had been out, probably quite a while by that point, but the, the migration of libraries and utilities to 3 was not complete by 2016. Not everyone had shifted to 3. So it just made sense for everyone to ship 2.7. But last year, 2 became deprecated. It is end of life now, so 3 is three is it. That's the only, you know, supported option that you have. So here's Slackware, and if you install it today from the DVD, then uh, Python 2 is the thing that you have. Whether that seems like a sensible default to you now or not, that's it's just that, that offset. You know, it's just inconvenient timing. Oh, by the way, the thing on your disk is now deprecated in real life. Too bad. So now th- there there are a couple of ways around that, but I, I won't I won't necessarily talk about that yet. First, I want to talk about other places that you see it, and and so so I think when you have a release, the the first clue that you get that the world is moving on without you, as it were, is is, is that kind of high level stuff like the Python incompatibilities, or, or not even incompatibilities, but just like, oh, everyone seems to be releasing for Python 3 now, and no one's using 2.7, and then eventually, oh yeah, 2.7 got deprecated. So you, you see that, and that's an easy fix, because you just think, well, okay, cool, I'll install Python 3, done, everything's fine, you've got everything you need again. Um, but the, the farther away from that release date you get in this sort of Big Bang-like explosion, you know, as you're traveling farther away from that point of origin, the the further down the stack, 
those incompatibilities start to go. So, you know, at some point you might find an application that, that wants not only Python 3, but also Qt 5. And you've got Qt 4 by default. Well, that's okay. You can install Qt 5. Now, that's a pretty big stack. There's a lot to think about there, but it, it's still a stack. It's still pretty self-contained. But then you start seeing things like uh, CMake incompatibilities. Because CMake needs, um, or, or this version of this application needs uh, C17 support, and your CMake is 3.5. Uh, and C17 support isn't available until 3.18 or something like that. So now you have to upgrade that. Uh, And then maybe some other application needs uh, some extra C headers that you don't have. You've got glib something, and you need glib something else. Not glib C, I'm just talking about glib, the the thing with all the extra functions in it. Um, So... Yeah, it starts to get closer and closer to that sort of core, that core set of utilities upon which a bunch of other things are built. And if you start swapping those things out, then you run the risk of, at best, introducing uncertainty into your system. And at worst, actually breaking something, like your computer won't boot kind of breaking, or your desktop won't launch, that kind of breakage. That can be pretty troubling, uh, and you really have to ask at that point, well, how important is this thing? And, and I had to ask myself that the just the other day I was going to install synth v1 and I've discovered that it is the the release it, the releases have been such that the that the release available in slack builds which is the official unofficial extras repository for slackware uh, slackbuilds.org uh, offers 0.9.12, I think it is, and that's been phased off of the download page in like SourceForge. And the 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 available releases, or the immediately available releases, are 16, 17, and 18, or something like that. And if you download 0.9.18, you'll find that there is indeed some kind of incompatibility. Something I forget whether it is the CMake thing. I know I upgraded CMake for something. Um, CMake or something like that, and, and you have to you have to resolve that, or, or you don't get it. Um, no, you know what it was? It was a cute incompatibility. It wanted five point nine, I think, and I've only got five point seven. Which I mean, I could I could upgrade cute, but then that becomes problematic potentially. So you know, you just kind of have to ask yourself, well, is that is that worth it? And you know, there's infinite flexibility in Linux. So technically speaking, you can make all of this go away. You can solve all of these problems. Um, but the what's not infinite, obviously, is your time. And and you do. You have to. There's a trade-off. You have to say, okay, well, I wanted the the fancy new thing over here, but it's going to cost me th- a weekend. Is that is that worth it? Or or is it not really is not that important and 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 you make that trade off and the the larger trade off really that you're making is that long term support do you do you want the OS itself to be stable and the same for five years or do you want to go at a shorter release cycle and start upgrading and sort of tracking along with the rest of the world. And I guess that's what I am kind of hinting at here, is that there is a thing called Slackware Current. And if you're not running Slackware Current, then it's not that hard to get started with Slackware Current. It's not something that I would do haphazardly. It is something I would definitely consider carefully, think about, kind of plan my upgrade path, and so on. But but essentially, it is a matter of switching over your your repository, your uh, Slack package mirror, to the current mirror instead of a 14.2 mirror. 
And then when you run Slack package update, you get all the changes, you, you get notification of all the changes that have happened since 14.2 was released, and since, uh, let's see, at the time of this recording, since uh, November 1st. That's the most recent entry in the change log at the time of this recording. So you get a notification of all these changes of how 14.2 has, has changed since 2016 up to 2020, and then you can tell it, if you want, to upgrade all, upgrade-all, and it will. It will upgrade everything on your computer. It's a big change uh, from 2016 to 2020, I can tell you that. And when you're finished, you can reboot. Uh, I think you have to reboot. I, I assume you would have to reboot. Um, then you you have a completely new system installed on your computer. It's a it's a really impressive and exciting activity. Uh, and a lot of people swear by current, uh, or if they don't swear by it, they they live happily with it. I, I did for a while um, on, on a computer. I don't know. I don't remember if I did it on like on my primary system or not. I think I might have for a while. I don't really do that anymore, but uh, it, it is something that I've done in the past. And I think about it sometimes, like on a spare computer, like maybe do that. I don't do it on a production system either way, or what I consider a production system. I mean, my production systems these days aren't actually production systems. They're, there's nothing that's actually mission critical, because there is no mission. Um, but there's there's what I'm comfortable with, and... Uh, and current seems a little bit too risky for me. Is current as risky as, say, I don't know, running Arch or, or Fedora even? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, when, when I was running it, I would say no. Uh, I would say that current uh, was fine. It's, it's not like it automatically upgrades you whenever Pat Volkerding makes a change. You know, you, you get to make that call of, of how closely you track current. And so if you... If you monitor the change log and kind of make upgrades as you see fit, and when you're comfortable to, to, to make those upgrades, uh, then I think, generally speaking, everything runs pretty much as expected. And this keeps you sort of tracking the rest of the world, at least to some degree. Now, again, like, I mean, when I say tracking, I mean, you know, uh, 5.4.74 is the kernel, as of this recording, that's the kernel that Pat just added to Slackware Current. Now, I'm going to type in uname-av on the system that I'm running, which is 14.2, and uh, I'm running 5.9.1, which is the latest kernel release uh, as of this recording. Uh, the latest stable kernel release as of this recording. So it's current, um, but it's still conservative, which, again, five-year support, you, that's kind of the, the feel that you want. You want to know that even when you're being current, you're lagging way behind using tested, tried-and-true tested kind of technology. So I would say that about current. I would I would say that that is very much the tradition of Slackware current, is that it is that it, it, it lags behind just enough to make you feel comfortable with, even though you're on the cutting edge, quote-unquote, of Slackware, you're, you're still being a very conservative kind of upgrader. So that's one option. Current is one option. As I said, it's it's not the one that I do, uh, typically, just because it is, um, it, 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 it typically, especially lately, it, it does involve some of the systems that I use Slackware heavily for. So, for instance, the ALSA and the Pulse audio. You start messing around with that and you actually do start affecting my workflow in a very real kind of everyday way. Because I do a lot of 
recording. I'm a podcaster. Go figure. So that that's sort of, that's the sort of thing that I don't like messing around with. If 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 Slackware Current was more about I don't know low level um, I don't know maybe if it was leaning into the container thing and that's where it was doing all of its experimentation I might actually be into that that might be interesting to track along with but for my audio and my video and stuff like that not so not so eager to jump on board with a with with something that kind of messes around with that so I don't do current what I've been doing lately well lately lately traditionally what I've done traditionally is or historically is uh stay on 14.2 or stay on the current release like that's or the um rather the the latest release that that's simply what I generally do. Um, if I'm feeling adventurous, which I, apparently I was this weekend, um, if I'm feeling adventurous, then I might upgrade some some major component. So this weekend, for whatever reason, I decided to upgrade my KDE desktop from 4 to 5, and it didn't go well. Did not go well um, as, as well as I would have expected. So um, Alien Bob, a contributor to Slackware, has a repository called K-Town, and in K-Town, he, he very kindly builds and releases, for everyone, um, Slackware packages of KDE, the KDE desktop, which, I mean, it's a huge undertaking, and I'm, I'm, I'm only assuming, and I hope, that he has it all scripted and, and automated so that he's not actually working too hard on it, because it's, it's a major undertaking. I tried building KDE once, and uh, it didn't go well. That that did not work out at all for me. Um, but he does it, and he pushes the packages to his server, and you can go get those packages, download them to your computer, and upgrade your your KDE install. Now that's a huge, huge change. There's a it, it, it's a major, major change because KDE has a lot going on with it. So when you do that upgrade, there is a heck of a lot that gets changed on your system. And that did not work for me. So what I ended up doing was uninstalling 4, no, uninstalling 5, going back to 4, and then just getting unhappy with the whole situation and reinstalled all of Slackware because I figured it was probably time to kind of check up with sort of how current Slack Slacker Media was anyway, because I, I felt like there's probably been packages that have fallen out of favor and that have come up that I, that hasn't been accounted for. So I just figured it was kind of re- I was it was a good time for an audit anyway. So I blew everything away except my home directory, obviously, and um, well maybe not obviously, but that's what I did, uh, and then reinstalled everything and it went swimmingly. So I, I did this from the Slackware DVD itself. So that's the 14.2, the thing that you get you know, back when it was released, back in 2016, in fact, this DVD is from 2016, popped it into my drive, installed it, and then I had a 14.2, stock 14.2 system, from from which I then upgraded everything uh, just within the 14.2. branch, so that everything was kind of up to date, you know, like the, the kernel and the, um, the, the some of the lower level libraries that had been uh, upgraded for whatever reason by by Pat himself. I installed uh, a more modern kernel just just because I could and then set about installing all of the slacker media packages from slackbuilds.org which which went well except for a couple of things here and there like I say some things have just kind of phased out other things have have changed or moved around on the internet and and so on so it was it was good that I did that I think for my own for for my own uh, rationale for for like my own project but um it it kind of highlighted sort of both the complexity and simplicity of keeping a a, a release 
kind of up to speed with the rest of the world. And and, and it, it kind of displayed how you can have a rather up-to-date system without going to current, uh, as long as you're willing to make either a couple of sacrifices or work a little bit extra to, to stay on that latest release. I can't necessarily say which one is the sort of the smarter choice, but I can say, again, for me, for my purposes, I feel like the a, a good way of splitting that difference between, okay, well, here's exactly what was released on 20, in, in 2016. Here's what's going to be released eventually in current. That, that middle ground is this sort of system that gets, well, patched a lot, right? You're patching your system a lot. And I think if I hadn't decided to just blow Slackware away and reinstall clean, I think, I mean, that is exactly what I had. I, I had the, the latest release, plus all the patches that Pat had sent through, plus any customations, customization that, customization that I did, and that's fine. And if I'd kept on that trajectory, it would have been fine until, until current became the new release. Because of circumstances, I didn't do that, and I, I, cleanly installed in a fresh thing of Slackware, and I, I feel like, generally speaking, that would have been fine too, but there would have been adjustments to make, I think. I think there would have been things to to account for, uh, which is why I was glad that I did it, because if, if someone out there wants to build up a Slacker media system at this point, then they're going to find some unpleasant surprises, like, oh, well, this, this package here doesn't build. I don't know why, because I'm not good at this sort of thing, and I'm just following this instructions by this guy named Clatu. Why isn't it working? Well, I now I know why it's not working, and now I can go amend the documentation. But um, I, I feel like it's important to re- remember that even as one thing stays the same, the rest of the world is progressing, and you ca- you do have to take that into account. And so one of the ways that you can do that is you can install the stuff that works for you and keep it more or less at a stable in a stable state. That gets complex if you get into Slackware at a point when those things aren't stable anymore, uh, because now you've you, you're, you're dealing, you know, you're having to backtrack. It's kind of like if you're running Fedora or, or or Rel, and you realize, oh, I need this package that only Fedora has, but not Fedora, not the Fedora of today. It's the Fedora of three versions ago. So I'll go raid their software repository. In other words. I guess I wish there was a way to tie software releases to to dates more better. You know what I mean? Like, if I know that Slackware was released in 2016, and if if we're saying, well, you've got three good years of, of being, for all intents and purposes, current or modern, then I know that any any package I find on the internet, any source code, any any source bundle I find on the internet up to 2019 should basically be safe to install like that 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 would be a good sort of earmark and anything from like 2020 on well they've probably shifted over to this and that and and this technology and that technology and now and now it has to you have to kind of readjust and and you have to just be prepared that if you if you if you get anything that's ticked over on that on that on that 2020 side then then now you have to you're going to just know that you're going to have to rebuild some low level library in order to account for that or whatever i i kind of wish that there was a a better way to adjust uh sort of yeah according to year such that it's not the version of the thing that actually matters on on a 
a zoomed out level. You don't really care about the version. You just care about kind of like the the underlying platform that it was built for. Now, if it sounds like I'm starting to hint toward a talk about Flatpak again, I'm afraid I am. Uh, but but this is also applicable to like App Image as well because both. App Image and Flatpak acknowledge that, you know, when building across platforms, or rather, when building across distributions, the important thing is to, is to build for, build for a certain point in time. For App Image, they, they tend to, to recommend to build your App Images on CentOS, you know, last version, whatever, you know, whatever that was. So it used to be 6, now it's 7, because CentOS is on 8 now, so build it on 7. That way you know that you're catching all that, all those distributions that were kind of concurrent with 7, which, by the way, has a five-year long-term support, that'll work. Uh, Flatpak doesn't really have to worry about it, have to think about it in that way, because they have their platform releases that they, they, they have released, and when you install a Flatpak, it knows what platform it was built for, so it pulls that in if it's not already on your system. Really, really, really good principle to remember. And it turns out it's useful, just as useful for Slackware. So I am currently running Slackware 14.2, but with an updated kernel, with an updated glib, not glibc, just glib, updated, um, I don't know, CMake, updated, uh, updated Qt 5. 5.7, I think. So anything beyond 5.7, you know, if it requires 5.9 or whatever, that's not going to build for me. And frankly, I'm okay with that. Could I could I download Qt 5.9 and 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 install, you know, and make make things work? Yes, I could do that. Not going to. It's just not that important to me. But so there's there's a little bit of um of manual maintenance. Which, again, if you're running Slackware, you're probably okay with that as a concept. I don't know that you need to be, but if, if you want to hit that middle ground, then that's where you would, that's where you would want to be. So the, the weak point in this equation, I think, in the way that Slackware is sort of set up right now, at least, the, the weak point is for the, is for the, the person who does want the latest things, but doesn't want to have to work for it. Now, I think you could probably say, well, that's not a weak point because that's what Slackware Current could be. Um, but I think to be fair, I don't think Slackware Current sort of presents itself as a as a thing that you're supposed to be doing. It, it is very much kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of system where you get in if you know about it and know how to activate it. It's not something that's really promoted as a thing. And and to, to compare that, for instance, just go to uh, OpenSUSE.org. You go to OpenSUSE.org and they 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 tell you right there on the on the page uh, that you have Tumbleweed and you have Leap. And and that's what you're presented with. And and that is exactly what I've just described. I mean, it, you can have Tumbleweed for, for it's their rolling release. Um, it is everything that you, you know, you, you have access to stuff as it is released. And then Leap is the one that, that is released. It has, it has a release and then it is frozen. CentOS has done the same thing, CentOS.org. You have CentOS Linux and CentOS Stream. And the stream is the one that gets you everything as it is released. CentOS Linux is the one that you get a snapshot of a certain thing in a certain time, and that is where you are. And that's CentOS. I mean, that's kind of a big deal in a way. I mean, the way that they apparently see themselves for the stream, CentOS stream, is kind of this rolling release distro that is ahead of RHEL, 
Red Hat Enterprise Linux, um, but not so far ahead that it is equal to Fedora. So it's kind of that, again, that kind of middle ground between the snapshot and the thing that the developers are committing every night. There's that sort of middle ground to get you sort of somewhere in between. It's, a, it's an interesting shift, I think, in in operating system development. And, and I'm probably, I'm aware that I'm probably quite late in even vocalizing this. I mean, I know Arch has been around forever. Fedora has been around forever. I mean, these are things that are famously sort of cutting edge, dangerously cutting edge, and and, and the antithesis to the, the sort of snapshot release concept. And I, I think it's it's most interesting to me to find that Slackware kind of does actually fit that model after all, a, a little bit. As conservative as current is, it is still current. And as old as 14.2 is, it can be made more current or not, depending on your, your requirements. So those are the options anyway. You've got the snapshot release where you install it from a DVD. Maybe you get one or two things from Slack build, and that's it. That's, that's all you ever do. That's kind of your ecosystem. And I imagine you could run on that for quite some time and be very happy. I mean, I know you can. Uh, and then and then there's that middle ground where you take the 14.2 and you start modifying it here and there. And that's probably the most, of all of these, that's actually to be fair, probably the most dangerous, because you could, if you're doing it manually, you can screw things up. Whereas current has, has a, a lot of people testing it, and, and generally, if you, if, as long as you don't track it every night, uh, it's, it's a pretty safe th- place to be. I, I know quite a few people, a friend of mine, McNallu, does, follows current pretty regularly from what he's told me, and he says it's fine. He doesn't seem to have any problem with it. So, those are your options. As I say, the, um, the current one is just a matter of taking Slack your Slack package mirror in slash Etsy slash Slack package slash mirrors uh, and just setting it to a current mirror instead of uh, a 14.2 mirror and you're fine. So anyway, I'm not I'm not advising you to do one or the other. I'm simply laying out the the landscape. I'm just describing what we have to work with and uh, it's it's a pretty nice toolkit. I mean, it really is. It's a lot to work with, very, very flexible, and it is, as usual, you can make it exactly what you need it to be. That's the beauty of Slackware. It's the beauty of Linux. So I'm not re- I'm not recommending one over the other. I'm just reporting. So make your make your choice, choose your poison, and uh, get into it. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. Listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Ogcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.
end of side one. To continue, turn the cassette over.